0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, once again to Exodus chapter 19. Our discussion this morning continues... Uh, ...of the introduction to the Ten Commandments that are given to us in the next chapter, the 20th chapter. Chapter 19 is the preparation phase for the children of Israel to receive the law that God spoke from Mount Sinai. The law is what established Israel as a nation. They were already a people that was living under the superintending providence of God. That is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham many, many years before... And Abraham, God said, would be made a father of many nations, but especially of one peculiar, particular nation, and that is that would become his chosen people. Abraham had two sons. Only one of them was the son of promise. And through that son Isaac, we have the trilogy that uh, stands for God's greatest nation. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob was called Israel. Now here then is Israel standing before God. They're ready to become a people that is governed by His law. And they would receive the codification of the moral law that was written on tablets of stone. At the same time, Israel received many other laws. Uh, They were given the laws of uh, worship. Those were given at the very same time. Uh, They were given peculiar dietary laws and laws of hygiene. And some of those that we would look at and we would say how strange the things that God required of Israel. But those laws made Israel more than a people that was just governed by laws. It made them a separate people. It made them people that were different from any others that were on the earth. And God was showing through those peculiar laws what a special people that they were. That he had specially chosen them for his purposes. So sometimes people wonder, why is it that the moral law of God is still binding on us today, whereas the other laws that were given at the same time are not binding upon us? Well, the ceremonial laws were fulfilled in Jesus uh, when he died on the cross and in his life and when he died on the cross, so we don't no, no longer have those laws of sacrifice. The peculiar dietary laws and those things are not binding upon us today because we are no longer or we are not a theocratic nation. We're not governed directly by God in that sense, but we have other governments, human governments, that are over us, and that is not a separating thing. But the moral law is, in fact, still binding upon us. The moral law is actually about the character of God, that God reveals himself through his law, and respect for God's law and who he is, knowing and understanding who he is, is proved by our obedience to this moral law. And since God is a kind, benevolent, loving God, a gracious God, this is what the law also teaches us. It teaches us how to treat our fellow man. First of all, how we are to have respect for God, for who He is. But then it teaches us how we live with our fellow man. And this is why it's so important that we understand the law and keep the law, because otherwise we have no way of living in fellowship with our fellow man. These are laws that never go out of style. As long as we live on the earth, we have a duty towards God and to others. And when we ignore these laws, we end up with the many issues that the world faces today. Politicians have come to the place where they're in such big trouble over the moral quandary that we, and they wonder, what are we going to do? And so, in order to stop the crime rate, or Lord, and, or Lord say that we have affected the crime rate, you know the only thing that they did do is they just decriminalize things. It's no longer wrong to do these things. And so the crime rate goes down correspondingly. Well, we can't do without God's moral law. People recognize the problem, but they're unwilling to turn to God to solve that problem. And so they say things like, what we really need to do is get back to the basics. As I told you last week, people say, you got to get back to the basics and how we are to treat one another, have the right relationship with one another. And so they say things like, we need... Something like the Ten Commandments. But there isn't anything like the Ten Commandments because men did not write these laws. These laws were first written on the heart and then God set them in stone. The law was laid down by God and it is this law by which we will be judged forever. This is the law that we will be judged by. Now the right understanding of the Ten Commandments will show us that there is nothing in the experience of humans that is not covered by these ten laws that God gave. Ten very basic statements. Only God is capable of giving such sweeping, comprehensive statements of the human condition and those things that enable us to live together in peace. Now, the brevity of the Ten Commandments, despite this sweeping scope that they have, is simply supernatural. Now, to the Hebrews, the Ten Commandments were known as ten words. In ten words, God spoke everything concerning the human condition and about our relationship with God. How can only ten words be so monumental as to be able to do that? Well, the only answer we have for it is these are things that are written by the finger of Almighty God. So here we are then in the 19th chapter of Exodus, and the children of Israel are at the foot of Mount Sinai. They were fresh out of Egypt... There are only 45 days since they have departed Egypt, and God brought them to this place to meet with them and to give him his law. Now, we notice about this that God didn't wait until they got into the promised land. Now, as far as distance and normal time is concerned, they were just a very short time from being in uh, Canaan, and there God could speak to them, and there God could establish them as the nation and give them all of these laws. But God knew that he was dealing with a very rebellious people. Because of the abrogation of the promise that they made God in verse number 8, they would spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And all of them died there. Their children, not them, were the ones that inherited the promised land. Now during that time of wandering, what God did was to prepare them Uh, and get these laws organized, get the people into the mode of worship, understanding how they should worship God, today we might say that God was whipping them into shape for them to go into the promised land. Or as the title of this message suggests, He was laying down the law to them. Here, O Israel, here is what I want you to do, God says. Here are the conditions upon which you will receive the promises of the covenant with me. Now, in the next weeks and months, as we study these commandments, we're going to look at what each of them means. Why are they so important for our relationship with God and with each other? But before we get into chapter 20, we have to do exactly what God did with the children of Israel. He had to prepare their hearts, prepare them to receive the commandments that He would give. And these were monumental statements that He would make And this is the law that still governs us. It will govern us until we reach perfect obedience in heaven. And we should understand through the study of the commandments that heaven is achieved only because God's law has been kept perfectly. God's justice has been satisfied perfectly. But it was done in the one, the only one who it could be done in. And that is the substitute who died for our sins. And that is Jesus Christ. Now, we looked at that particular part last week as we discussed the foundation of the law. That the foundation of the law is laid in the grace of God. Exodus 19:4 says, Ye have seen, God speaks to them. He says, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. So God said to them, You saw what I did. The emphasis here is always upon what God did. And that's because Egypt was too big, it was too formidable, it was too powerful for them to escape. A nation of shepherds could not overcome the might and the power of Pharaoh. Egypt was a dynasty of powerful Pharaohs whose whose strength was actually ostentatiously displayed in in great monuments that was built by the slave labor of these same Hebrews. Many of the pyramids of of, uh, treasure cities of Pithom and Ramses were built by these Hebrews. The Pharaohs were like gods to the Egyptians. They didn't dare cross them. And yet in this story, we learn that Pharaoh was nothing but putty in God's hands, that God manipulated him and took him every which way that he wanted him to go. He was like a piece of clay on a pottery wheel that God molded and shaped and did with it exactly what he wanted to do. He used Pharaoh for his purposes and showed his power by grinding Pharaoh and his armies into the dust. So what Pharaoh did was to serve God's purpose, and then God cast him aside. He was done with him. He drowned him and his army in the Red Sea. And so God says to Israel, you saw what I did. You saw the plagues. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. You see how I have given you flight and have held you as it were above the fray and bore you on eagles' wings and have delivered you from the bondage of Egypt. And friends, we can just say that is by the grace of God. This is how He does things. The grace of God falls on His people, and Israel contributed nothing to their deliverance, nothing to their rescue. Keeping the commandments is not what did it for them, because the commandments hadn't yet been given. The commandments uh, come after the deliverance, and that's the same as it is for lost sinners, that... We are bound in the shackles of sin. We can't do anything about it. We can't free ourselves. Neither do we want to do anything about it. Deliverance comes only by the hand of God. It's only by the grace of God reaching down and touching us and changing us that we're able to escape this bondage of sin. And although the law cannot save us, the law still has to be satisfied. Because God never sets aside the penalty of breaking the law. Very simply, I'm telling you, somebody has to pay. All of us have broken God's law, and somebody has to pay. And that's what Jesus Christ did. Jesus satisfied the demands of God's justice. He paid the penalty that was due us, that should have been ours. And that transaction took place by grace, and only by God's grace. So the foundation of the law is grace. And God gathered Israel before him to make this statement of grace. You saw what I did for you. And so remember this. Always remember this. The law is not given as a means for us to be saved. It doesn't gain our freedom. Our freedom is only gained by the grace of God. Now next we we, we talked about the condition for blessing, which we find in verse number 5. Where God says, now therefore, if ye will obey my voice, indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Obey my voice. So the condition is obedience. And by virtue of obedience, God says, then you'll be a peculiar treasure unto me. You'll be a people that will be a kingdom of priests. Now those who keep God's commandments prove That they love God. Obedience is the real mark of transformation. Now the laws of God can be a curse to us. Or they can be a blessing. They're a curse to us when we don't obey them. They become the noose around our neck. That means that punishment is coming. God's law is preserved for all time. It can be a curse or a blessing. It's a curse when the unbeliever says, I'm not going to obey God. And God is relentless towards that. He's never going to let that person go. He's never going to forget the sins that have been committed. The Bible says he does not clear the guilty. Now, on the other hand, the law becomes a tremendous blessing to the believer in Christ because by the law we learn that God is always faithful that God never changes, that God will not change His mind and His purpose towards us. The Bible says that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means that God has bound Himself to His law. Now, that's the way that we know that God is consistent. If you believe today, then you are secure forever, because God doesn't change. This is the way that he always deals with us. He always deals on the consistency of his law. And for that reason, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall not pass away. So God told Israel, if you obey me, then you will prosper. It couldn't save their souls. It was the condition of blessing, uh, condition of obedience rather, that by that, that they could expect God's blessings upon them above all the rest of the nations of the world. Well, that brings us to something new today. That was last week's information. Today we come to something new, and this is the third thing that I want to talk to you about the law in respect to this passage, and that is the intentions of Israel. What did, you, what did Israel say that we will do when God spoke to them? Verse 7 says, And Moses came and called for the elders of the people, and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him, And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. Now you see, the always upfront proposition with God is that no one can expect to deal with Him without recognizing that God has the right to command. God does not deal with anyone that doesn't promise to obey his commandments. That is the recognition that God is God, that God is the Lord. And God always requires absolute submission. And what he's teaching here is that the king is not going to extend the blessings of his power. He will not extend his protection to people who will not obey him. Now notice in verse number 8, Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. The people said, we will obey. And then beginning in verse number 9, God said, lo then, or lo, I'm coming to you. And that's because of their promise to obey. And we wonder, how is this part missed so badly today? It used to be that there wouldn't be anyone who would argue this point. How do we receive the gracious benefits of the Lord? Would the Lord have called them His people? Would He have given them His laws? Would He have made them His peculiar people if Moses had returned and said, well, the people are really happy about deliverance. They're really glad that you got them out of Egypt. But they said, who are you that we should obey the Lord? We're not going to obey the Lord. We like deliverance, but we're not going to obey Him. Could you imagine that there would be a more ridiculous response? And yet, did you know that that is actually the way that the gospel is preached today in many Baptist churches? That preachers will tell you that what you must do is receive Christ as your Savior. He's ready to save you, but you don't need to worry about Him being the Lord right now. That can come later. That's a different thing. You don't have to make a promise that you're going to obey God. It's the same thing as saying, God, save me. I'm happy that you will save me and keep me out of hell, but I'm not making any promises that I'm going to obey. Are we so mixed up on the gospel of Christ that we don't understand that salvation comes only by, to those who repent of their sins, place their faith in Christ, a faith that has inherent in it a promise to obey? There isn't any other kind of saving faith but that. The faith that you have must be a faith that promises to obey. Now, it's true, there isn't an act of obedience that will save us. There are not a combination of acts of obedience that will save us. However, saving faith is an obedient faith. A faith that's willing to surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ and then will demonstrate itself in acts of obedience. If it's not that kind of faith, then it's the wrong kind of faith. It's not a faith that will save. Did you know that no one ever used to argue that point? It wasn't until we started having these quick, easy conversions and head counting became the measure of success of a ministry, it was when people were sold a bill that said, you can have a ticket to heaven because you've recited a prayer. And people say, well, I want to go to heaven. But then they didn't show any evidence of true belief because there was no change from disobedience to obedience. This this week I received a letter from another church where they were going to honor their pastor. And one of the comments that they made about this particular pastor was that under his ministry, there were thousands upon thousands that had been won to Jesus Christ. And yet that very same pastor, pastors a church, is not any larger than this one. And so we wonder, where are those thousands and thousands that turned to Jesus Christ? And here is the very problem that I'm talking about. A prayer was said but there was no commitment to Christ. There was nothing that said, I will obey Jesus Christ. And I'm afraid that some of you that have come out of fundamentalism are living that lie today that your faith is in your profession. It's in a prayer that you said. It's not. It hasn't made any practical difference between you and the ungodly. Now here in Exodus 19, we have a very clear view of lordship salvation. Could we say there's... One-to-one correspondence? Well, no, we can't because these are types. These are things that teach us the way that the Lord works. Moses, though, could not return with the word. The people don't promise to obey you. And then expect that God would still give them the laws that would make them his peculiar people. Now, this we know by reading the story and going on through the history of Israel and seeing what happens in the wilderness that very few of the people actually did believe. We've already noted that very, very few of them kept the commandments. Those who did made an outward commitment, just like many people do today. They make an outward commitment, but there hasn't been anything that's happened in the heart. There hasn't been a real change in the heart. So they obeyed God simply by rote. Some of them didn't obey God at all. Most of them didn't. And so what happened? They fell in the wilderness. Now, let's take a look at what the New Testament has to say about this passage. If you'll take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 5, the Apostle Paul addresses the very things that we read about the children of Israel in the wilderness. What happened to them? What was going on? And why did so many of them fall? What's their problem? When we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 5, it says, But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, what does that disobedience mean to us? Well, why does Paul bring this up here in the New Testament, First Corinthians? Well, he goes on to explain, and we need to pay very close attention to his explanation. Look at verse number 6. Now, these things were for our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Christians, we need to pay attention now. Read the word of God. They should not lust after evil things. We should not, as they lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. These things then are recorded in the Bible, so that you might learn by them, that you might see them as an example for what you should and you should not do in your own life. Now do you understand this, that, that God deals with His people on the condition of obedience, which means that the law of God is not passe for Christians. These people were overthrown in the wilderness. They died. They died, and it was their children that was then brought to the edge of the promised land 40 years later, and what did Moses do? He stood there before he went. the people went into the promised land, and he recited all of this law to them again. And he secured the promise before they went in that they would obey God just like their forefathers said in Exodus 19. So before you can go in, you've got to promise that you're going to obey the law of God. And it was then that all the men were circumcised. For 40 years they hadn't done any circumcision. So all of them were circumcised before they go in. That's the intent, the obedience. And they said, we're going to do all that God has commanded. Now, they responded that way because they knew what God did, that it was God who brought them out by His grace. They saw the plagues that was on the Egyptians, and not one of those plagues touched the people of God when they were in obedience. Now, in the next 1,500 years of Israel's history, what is the event, or what is the series of events, that they're always brought back to as an example? If you haven't read the Bible through, you ought to read it all the way through and just underline the many times that we come back to this very example. It is the Exodus from Egypt that is used as the great example of the providence and the power of God. It's to prove that God is great and that He alone is the one who is to be served as Lord. That's very important when you get into the very first commandment, isn't it? I am the Lord your God. That's what God says. And so these events, these, these spectacular, miraculous events of the exodus are to prove to us who God is. Now, obedience is their promise. They said that they would obey, but these in the 19th chapter didn't obey. While Moses was up on the mount, it took less than 40 days for them to break the second commandment that Moses was right then receiving. They made a golden calf when God says, you shall not make any idols. Their intention was to obey. And that has to be the intention before God would speak to them and begin the process of making them a great nation. Now next I want to show you from the passage the dedication of the people. What did they do to get ready for the reception of God's law? Now notice how they prepared themselves. Verse number 10 And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. So there was two days of preparation before they met with God. And the power of God on that mountain was devastating thunder and lightning. There was thick smoke. There was a voice of a trumpet, fire, and smoke, and earthquakes are all spoken about here in verses 16 through 19. Now this tells us that God must be approached with utmost reverence. It says the people trembled at God's presence. God sanctified the mountain holy. God was there. And because He was there and He was holy, God said, you can't touch the mountain. Don't get close to the mountain. He said, even if an ox starts to graze on its slopes, I will strike it dead. Now again, we need to go to the New Testament to see how that speaks to us, living in the day of grace. So turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And Hebrews chapter 12 recites this very same incident, the people approaching God on the basis of the law, and then we're going to see how the approach is in the, on the basis of grace. Is there a difference in those two things? Or there is, but not in a way that you might expect. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse number 18. Now, before Israel sees, receives the law, they get information about, I should say, these Hebrews in Hebrews 12, before they get information about how to approach God. First Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, tells them what happened in the approach to God in Exodus 19. Now, verse 18 says, For ye, speaking to the Hebrews in the New Testament, For ye are not come to the mount that might be touched, and that burn with fire, and unto blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Now what Hebrews is explaining is the fear of God meeting him on the physical mount of Mount Sinai. And that's meeting him on the terms of the law. And then it tells us how much more that we should fear God when we come to him on terms of grace. That is actually the opposite. Of what most people think. Most people think that the restrictions of the law are relaxed. We don't really need to fear God anymore, do we? We don't need to fear God as Israel did. But how wrong they are. Because the Word of God teaches that when we know God in grace, that the fear of Him is exponentially increased. So listen as the author of Hebrews, Hebrews goes on to explain how that our approach to God is even more critical in the dispensation of grace. Verse 25, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape to refuse him that spake on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. Now look at verse 28. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably, listen, with reverence and godly fear. Next verse, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, there, there, there you see that nothing's relaxed. Grace doesn't take away the fear of God. Obedience is heightened by it. Reverence is more demanded than ever before. Don't let anyone ever tell you that grace has changed the obligation to God's moral law. There, there is no relief from the command to obey. And so we must come to God in reverence. And yet, what do we notice about the people of God today when they come to church? There isn't much reverence. There is no fear when we come before God. There is no personal holiness when we come to worship. These are people that prepared themselves for two days before they came and spoke with God. That's when God appeared with the law. And Hebrews tells us that we have to be far more prepared when we come to God on the terms of grace. And so I have to ask you the question, when you come to church, are you prepared to hear from God? Are you prepared in holiness to come as you sit in this place to hear from God? Heinrich Bullinger correctly stated in the second Helvetic Confession of Faith, He wrote, Wherefore, when this Word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very Word of God is preached and received of the faithful. So when a preacher faithfully surrenders to the Holy Spirit in the preaching of the Word, you know what he's saying? He's speaking God's words. He's speaking God's Word to you. Bullinger went on to say that it's the words of God that are to be regarded Not the minister. You need to very clearly understand that when you come here, you are hearing from God. And I can promise you, you don't want to mess with God. This is not a place for entertainment. Not for your enjoyment of entertainment. That's why Berean Baptist may be so different from other churches around us. This is not a place for your entertainment. This is not a place where we're going to set up props for the next play that we're going to put on. No, we're here to speak the word of God. God said to Moses, When I speak with you, the people will know that they've heard from me. The true Word of God is when God speaks through the faithful pastor who expounds God's word in his sermons. I don't want this to be the place of my opinions. We must hear from God. And when the word of God is preached, what we must do is to reverently bow in our hearts and say, God has spoken. God has spoken. We will obey all He tells us to do. Do you have enough reverence that when you come to church, that you will make that kind of a promise to God? As you listen to the exposition of these commandments over the next few weeks, are you prepared to come and say, all you have spoken, we will do? And I suspect there are many of you that will not. And how do I know? You'll not come prepared. You'll not come reverently and take your place and listen to God speak. And many of you will hear from God and let it go in one ear and out the other without the Word taking up residence in your heart to change you. And what you will do is do what you've always done. You'll find your way around the commands of God. And many of you, as you do it, will quote the grace of God for it, as if the grace of God says... This isn't necessary. You don't have to obey. You're saved by grace, aren't you? You're going to stay saved by grace. You need not worry about obedience. You're on your way to heaven. You're secure. You're going to be there. Don't worry about what that preacher says about obeying the laws of God. And when you hear that, you've heard Satan speak, not God. If you hear and you don't like what you hear, come with the attitude, if God said it, I'm going to do it. It will change me. I will obey Him. Now, what we dare not do is come and hear from God and then turn from it. There is no more fearful place to be than to sit at the foot of Mount Sinai and hear from God as He thunders and speaks to you from His Word and then say, I'm not going to do it, and then leave unchanged. Come with respect and awe and reverence and submission. Come with dedication to the obedience To God's word. Are you going to do that? Or will Saturday night be just like every other Saturday night before Sunday? Now finally, as we introduce these commandments, we must understand the function of the law. Why did God give it? Why is it here? Why is it in the Bible? Well, we know it's not given to save. I've made that point clear, I hope. We already know this by looking at verse number 4. Grace is its foundation. It's what God does, not us. Paul explained that the law didn't do anything to change the promise that God made to us. So let's go back to the New Testament again, where we get a good explanation of where we got the law, why we have it. Galatians chapter 3. Let's turn there and see what the Apostle Paul has to say about this law of God that we are to obey. What is it for? Why did God give it? Is it Old Testament and just Old Testament? He explains to us, Galatians 3 verse 17 And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. What he's talking about there, the covenant, is the covenant that he made with Abraham, a covenant of faith. It was made many, many years, 400 years before the law was given. Now, the law was given after the covenant, so we know that the promise of Abraham was not predicated upon the law. God didn't say, well, you got to obey the law to get the covenant. That's not what he said. It's given before the law was given. Now look at verse number 19. Why did God give the law? Wherefore then serveth the law? Or what is it for? It was added because of transgression, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Here we find the first reason for the law. And that is, the law establishes transgression. Does that mean there was no sin before the law? No, it doesn't mean that. Of course there was sin. Adam sinned. Paul said in Romans chapter 2 that the Gentiles who didn't have the law were still sinners because the law has been written on the heart. Now, in other words, there isn't anybody who has an excuse to sin even though they don't have a copy of the Ten Commandments. And so the courts can take down the Ten Commandments if they want. It doesn't change anything. We're still going to be judged by it. Well, how then does the law establish transgression since we're already sinners? Well, it establishes it by putting it right in front of us, written by the finger of God to show, yes, you have transgressed by stealing and by cursing and by cheating and by disobeying your parents and by skipping church. And lusting after the opposite sex, or today, the same sex, it's given to show that you are rebellious against God. Now, the law establishes transgression by showing how serious that it is. Romans 5.20 says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Or in other words, that it might embed into our minds the seriousness of sin against the holy God. So the law helps you to understand this written law shows you in unmistakable terms what sin is. So you can't come with an opinion that says, well, I don't think that's sin. This is my opinion about it. I don't think that that's a sin. God has the law so that you can't subjectively say, this is what I think about it. And that's what's happened in our world today, in our country today. The rejection of the law has led people to say, this is what I think about it. This is right. This is our new morality. Because it's what we think is right. Here in ten words, God gave what is right. And God leaves no room for argument. Now the second reason for the law is that the law establishes inability. The law is given to show us how helpless that we are to obey it. That we are not capable of keeping the ten commandments. Are we capable? No, we're not capable of keeping any of them. And if you say to me, well, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time. And I've been working on this thing, and I think I've just about got it all down. I'm just about to the place. Maybe I've got one or two I'm kind of working on. When I get that done, then uh, I'll have the Ten Commandments conquered. I've even had somebody in the church tell me that before. It says, you know, I've never really been a sinner. Well, how'd you get to be a member of the church? Something's wrong here. Uh, No, 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 no. We're incapable of keeping any of the Ten Commandments. Now, of course, we, we keep them in a measure. Now, if you say to me, well, I've got it conquered. I've just got a couple more that I'm really working on. Then I would say, go back to the very beginning. Have you really, have you really honored God and loved Him with all of your heart? Have you removed all the idols out of your life? Do you really have no other gods before God? And you'll find out that you're not capable of keeping the commandments perfectly. Jesus summed it all up succinctly. You know, love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you can't do that, then you can't keep the Ten Commandments. Now, as we go through the study, you'll find yourself on every one of them. You'll come to the place, you'll say, I've got trouble with all of them. I've been saved for I don't know how many years, but I've still got trouble with all of them. Now, let me also add this about legalism. If you try to make yourself holy by keeping a list of rules, then what you have done is to bound yourself Bind yourself to do everything that's in the law. And you'll find that cutting your hair is not enough. And lengthening your skirt is not enough. And staying away from R-rated movies is not enough. Churches and pastors say, we've got to make a rule for that. We've got to, we've got to enact a new rule for that one, don't we? So people can be holy. And when they do that, they've made the law a means of sanctification, and then by transference it becomes a means of justification, and it won't work. You become a debtor to do the whole law, that system dismisses grace, which is the only way by which we can be pleasing to God. We don't need to make more laws than God has already given in His Word. Thirdly, the law establishes condemnation. I look at that and I think, well, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? When you break the law, you're under the penalty of the law. I think it was Brother Dalton said at one time that he was driving in San Francisco and he didn't notice that the carpool lane had switched from two persons to three. So the police stopped him and they fined him. He had to pay the penalty of the law. Now, that, that penalty is stiff. I've never been fined for driving in the carpool lane. Lots of other things, unfortunately, that I've done, but not that one. Not, not, not disobeying that particular traffic law. The law establishes a penalty for breaking it. There's a judgment for that, and as I said, that that judgment uh, is four hundred dollars or so. Well, in a measure, that's the way that God's law is. But you need to understand that breaking God's law is far more serious than that. It's not a four hundred dollar fine. Every, every commandment that you break, carries with it, or it is, a capital offense. Death is what you deserve for breaking God's law. Did you know that? It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter. Death is what you deserve, and that's what God gives. He gives death. There's only one penalty for all of God's laws, and it's death. So the law establishes that you are a law breaker. Now, the point is, then why does God condemn you? The reason is because of the laws that you didn't keep. Ten of them are given that cover every possible scenario. The law establishes transgression. If you do it, it's sin. It establishes inability. You can't keep from doing it because you are naturally a law breaker. And then it establishes what's going to happen to you. You're going to be judged and you will be condemned. Well, then we come to the overall overarching purpose of the law and what it's for and we find that in galatians 3 verses 21 to 24 you're still there in galatians let's look at that is the law against the promises of god god forbid for if there had been a law given which could have given life verily righteousness should have been by the law but the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ, might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, and shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. But now, verse 24, Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law says, don't come here. If you want to be justified, do not come here. I don't have anything for you that will make you right with God. The law can't do anything but condemn you. It shows how helpless and unworthy that you are. You are a sinner. And so it says to you, go someplace else if you want to be justified with God. And so where does it send us? It sends us to faith in Christ. It sends us back. To the grace of God, which is the only way that we can be justified. Now, I like what Paul says in the next two verses. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. You see, the law wants us for only so long. The law wants to hold us long enough to show us that it's not the place for us to go. It holds us long enough to teach us that we cannot become children of God by keeping it. And then it turns us loose to faith. It teaches us as a schoolmaster to get us to the point that we come to faith in Christ. It turns us loose when that job is done. And so when we come to faith in Christ, we're no longer under that schoolmaster. We're no longer transgressors. Not that you don't personally sin, but that your transgressions are no longer counted against you because you have faith in Christ. So it releases you from the transgression and guilt of the law. It makes you say that you're no longer condemned by it. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, Romans eight one says. Because Christ has satisfied all the demands of the law placed upon us, we're set free from the law altogether. We're set free from all the objections that the law makes against us And then we're found included in the promise that's made to Abraham. Verse 29. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. So that returns us then to Exodus 19.24 and God's grace which is the foundation of the law. Everything in the law is holy and righteous. It is good. The law is the revelation of God's character. It shows us what we can be by His grace. And then obeying God's law is the method of teaching us to be like Him. So why did Christ obey the law perfectly? Because He's God. Because He's the same in character as the Father. He couldn't do anything less than to keep all of the laws perfectly. And he wants you to receive him as Lord and Savior in order to make you like God. Now, let me finish by returning us to lordship salvation. Those who teach non-lordship salvation teach a different purpose for salvation's object. They say that salvation is to keep you out of hell. Oh, that's a wonderful benefit. You You don't have to go to hell. That's not salvation's object. The object of salvation has a much bigger purpose. That is, God doesn't save you for you, but God saves you for him. He saves you for his glory, and that can only be accomplished by obedience. You see, the glory of God is his holiness, and he commands us to be holy as he is holy. And you can't do it without obedience. That's your duty as a Christian, to obey God now that you have the right understanding of his law. So Moses then can report back. The people said they will do everything that you told them to do. And now God's ready to proceed with the law that will make them like he is. And do you see this is what you need to do? As you hear each commandment, you need to say, I will do this because I want to be like God. His children always want to be like him. If you have anything l- less than that on your mind, then what you need to do is to back up, reevaluate, and change your ways. Otherwise, you're like Israel in the desert that will never make it, that will never find its way to the promised land. That's the importance of your obedience to God's law. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now recognizing that we are sinners, that there is no way that we can be saved except by your grace. We are unable to obey you as you have told us to. One transgression of the law has brought upon us the capital offense of death, and we have committed so many that we could never escape sin's curse. So we thank you for Jesus Christ, and that the law points us to him as the only remedy by which we can be saved. So many of our people today, maybe even some in this church this morning, have have, have been sitting here and listening, and they think about all the things that they've done that are right, all the things that they've tried to do to be right, all the things they've been told to do that will make them right, and they've skipped by your marvelous grace. None of the things that we do can make us right with you. It's only what Christ has done for us. Speak to someone's heart today that they would come to you by faith, recognizing I'm helpless, I'm a sinner, I can't do anything to be right. I need Jesus Christ. And may that confession come from a contrite heart today, pleading for your mercy and your grace to save. Speak to us today, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California.